0: All right, we are here for our last uh, week looking at Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, Guess what's coming up? VBS. Surprise, surprise. I know it snuck up on anybody. We haven't talked about it for the last month or anything. Uh, (laughs) uh, Yeah, the decorations are already starting to get out. Um, So this Saturday, uh, the rest of them will go up. So if you're around... Starting at 9 a.m., we need help inside, uh, transforming the church. We need some help outside, setting up the tents for the week. Um, And yeah, so we're excited about that. And then, so that begins uh, Monday morning uh, for the pre K, and then Monday night for elementary. And then all of that culminates in a church picnic on August 1st. So, Yeah, come back out that night, August 1st, uh, for our church picnic, and for those in the building, um, if you haven't signed up um, to either help or to bring something, we would love for you to do that, just a a side, a dessert, something uh, to share so that there's plenty of food for for everybody who's there, but um, excited to all these things are coming back, that last year we had to go without uh, our VBS, we had to go without our church picnic, Uh, and those are always, I feel like they breathe life into uh, our church. And so I'm glad that they're back this summer and excited to see what God has for all of that. But we tonight are here in uh, Nehemiah looking at the, the actual ending. Um, but let's we looked at kind of the happy ending um, last week. Let's continue the delusion for just a few more minutes that that's actually how it ends. Ended, uh, But just to, to recap all that we've read in a very uh, simplified form, there is a little chart on your notes, uh, and those are available online as well. Uh, but we saw three return and rebuild narratives um, in Ezra 1 to 6, where they, uh, the exiles first are allowed back into the land, and they rebuild the temple. The temple is kind of the main focus of what they rebuild, we talked about some other things that they did with um, the sacrificial system being uh, reinstituted, uh, the return of the liturgical calendar and celebrating their holidays and feasts. And then uh, Ezra 7-10 to 10 was the second one where uh, now Ezra comes back and he is an expert in the law and so he kind of reteaches Torah to the people. Uh, and then Nehemiah 1-7, Nehemiah comes, uh, Hearing that the city walls and uh, really the city itself, the infrastructure if you will is in ruins and so he goes back to uh, to rebuild that and all three of those are uh, depending on the what you choose to focus on are uh, successes that the temple is built the Torah is taught the city walls are built up, but uh, there 's a kind of an anticlimax to each of those three stories there are uh, details um, some very large and looming, that if we look at we 're like w- was it worth it? Was that actually a success or not but again there are there are steps forward there is progress being made, and then last week we saw nehemiah 8, uh, 12, or excuse me Nehemiah eight through chapter twelve verse forty three uh, kind of this ending where uh, the they have this huge celebration. All the people come and they gather and uh, Ezra preaches for like, what was it? From sunrise to noon. So for hours he's just reading from the Torah Uh, and then there are Levites priests who uh, go out to small groups and they kind of, do you understand what you've read? And they break down what uh, Ezra has been reading for the last six hours. And this goes on for several days and there is sorrow and guilt over uh, the past sins of the Israelites. Uh, they're re- rejecting and then uh, rejoicing over God's faithfulness and his love for them. Um, and they're told to, to take hope because the joy of, their, of the Lord is their strength or their refuge. So God's joy for his people is a safe place. Uh, certainly there are consequences for our sins, uh, but we don't live in guilt over our shortcomings and our failures because um, because God's joy is a refuge for us. Dave? Uh, yeah, I probably should have asked a month ago. What, what year, what's the range, B.C. to, you know, from the Yeah, the dates. If you asked a month ago, I might have known. <laughs> <laughs> Off the top of my head, I'm not sure. Um, I know that we are looking at a range. Uh, so Ezra 1 to 6... Again, off the top of my head, I'm not sure. Ballpark. Uh, even ballpark is rough. I bet I have a nice study Bible here, though, so I can just. BC, somewhere. It is BC. <laughs> I, yes. Oh, here we go. I randomly opened up to the perfect page. Um, yes. There you go. Uh, so we're like 5:38 at the beginning, and then going through to 4:32. So, we're looking at like a hundred years range here um, b- between the beginning of Ezra, Cyrus's first year, and then uh, Nehemiah's return, the, which is marked by the 32nd year of Artaxerxes. So, uh, we're putting us at roughly a hundred year span from 538 BC to 433. Uh, so,. Um, here we are at the end of this. So they've returned to the land. They've been in here for about 100 years. Um, and there have been ups and downs. There have been steps forward. But then as we've looked, there have been um, some shortcomings. But here in our happy ending, um, they are sorrowful for their sin. They realize that they brought this on themselves. But God takes joy in them. And so they are safe in this refuge of God's joy, that he has a plan and a purpose for them. And they renew their commitment to Torah. They promise not to neglect the temple. They kind of um, boil down the Torah to the seven commit, specific commitments that they make. Um, and there we are, and they rejoice, and everything is happy. Now, <clears throat> if that were actually the end of Ezra and Nehemiah, let's think Hypothetically, here. I've warned you, you guys know what is somewhat what is coming. Um, but if that is the ending of the story, what are the takeaways? If last week was the last week, we look at Ezra and Nehemiah, that's where it ends. Are there lessons to be learned? Uh, what are they? What are the things that we uh, can glean from that happy version of the story? Dave.
1: Mm. I mean, if it's, it's, we get really focused on our religion, our faithfulness with God, and then when things are going real well, then we kind of drift away, and and then we find ourselves in difficulty. it's a constant,
0: yeah. constant up and down. Yeah, yeah, the constant up and down, right, that uh, our... They know what to
1: do, but <laughs> it's just too much effort. Yes, like, yes. I don't want to get up on Sunday. Yes, our
0: trajectory in any given moment is not going to not necessarily going to stay our trajectory. And given uh, this story and probably our own personal experiences, we could say that our trajectory is not likely to remain our trajectory. And that has a good side and a bad side to it. Because when we're going good, that's not great because we know eventually we'll be going bad. But when things are going bad, there is hope that things will, will turn around. Yeah, that's a, a, a great takeaway. And one that probably doesn't when we add the not-so-happy ending, <laughs> we can still take that away. Uh, any other thoughts? What, what are things that we can take assuming a happy ending?
1: I was con- I've been considering the renewal aspect of everything. Okay. And um, how God is there to renew us. Whenever. Yeah. I mean, whenever we turn to Him, it's available. Yeah, yeah. You know, not to take advantage of it, you know the whole restoration mm-hmm. of Israel or Judah. Yeah. It is encouraging. You know that that even after the the um what was it the Babylonian exile. Right. They could come back. Yeah.
0: And restore everything. Yeah, yeah. The so Mike said there. Are, Thinking through that renewal aspect and the the hope, the encouragement to see that God is still working in His people. That I mean, what what is lower than for a people group to be taken over by another people group? Like they have hit rock bottom in Babylonian uh, exile, but God slowly starts to bring them back and and starts to their uh, traditions, their their actual city, their religious practice, all these things are coming back and uh, people are hearing this story. And we we see three different movements where that we have that initial movement. I, I, off the top of my head, I feel like there was like 42,000 people that uh, came along with that. But then we have another movement where Ezra comes and so more people are coming. So God's r- restoring his people. Um, and I think even to maybe tie the, the two together a little bit, that God, even when we are imperfect participants in God's renewal that renewal still moves forward and takes place right after each of those three movements we saw where the people failed where they didn't do get it quite right they made some good steps but they did some things wrong but God didn't say all right back to where you, where you were god continues to move forward so that is encouraging to know that that god's purpose the the joy of the lord being in us that uh, he takes joy in us that that doesn't go away when we are imperfect actors in the story that God is trying to tell. What? Any other thoughts? I think those are are great. Um, I would add. Uh, I don't know that this is uh, very different than what uh, has been said, but it was a hard. Difficult, challenging journey to come back, but we did it, right? If, if this is the ending, last week was the ending, that's kind of the feel. It's like, this was difficult. It was hard. It was long. It was a, over a, not even counting the time we were in exile, which was like seven, 50 to 70 years. But then just this return has been about 100 years. So it's been hard. It's been difficult. There have been ups and downs. There's been opposition from without. There's been infighting. Um, repercussions from past sins and from the sins that we've committed uh, ourselves, but we've now recommitted to Torah. We're setting things right. And so the moral of the story kind of becomes with enough hard work, with enough time, with enough determination, we can do it. We can get back in the good graces of God, that God will restore us, uh, that, that this is something we can do, we can make happen, we can set out the ingredients correctly and we'll get what we wanted. We'll get this return to our land. So what a happy thought to end on. Only we keep going. Uh, So we've done so much. We've seen the temple, the Torah, the city walls uh, rebuilt, reestablished. And uh, I've titled this last section, the great undoing. Uh, Because all that we saw built, all the hard work that we saw in a chapter and a half are undone. And so uh, prepare yourselves. That's what's in store. Let's start reading. We'll read through it. So starting in verse 44 of Nehemiah 12, we see, and this is before we read that, this is right off the heels of where we stopped last week. Um, verse 43. And on that day, they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. The sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. So the, we're, the party is loud and raucous and everyone's excited. God has given us a great joy. And at that time, uh, men were appointed to be in charge of the storerooms. For the contributions, first fruits, and tithes. From the fields around towns, they were to bring into the storerooms the portions required by the law for the priests and the Levites. For Judah was pleased with the ministering priests and Levites. They performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did also the musicians and gatekeepers, according to the commands of David and his son Solomon. For long ago, in the days of David and Asaph, there had been directors for the musicians and for the songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. So, in the days of Zerubbabel and Nehemiah, all Israel contributed the daily portions for the musicians and gatekeepers. They also set aside the portion for the other Levites, and the Levites set aside the portion for the descendants of Aaron. So, this is a, a continuation. We saw uh, right before the party, they recommit themselves to, uh, to their temple and to providing many of the, uh, the laws that they committed themselves to were about their tithes and uh, committing themselves to paying for the, the Levites. Um, and so these storerooms, there were these big storerooms in the temple uh, as they would collect a tenth from all the people. Uh, then the Levites would take a tenth of that and would set it aside. Uh, the, the food would be uh, a burnt offering for God. But the rest of it, was for the Levites to be used, and so it was put in these storerooms um, that are talked about here, so that they had all the materials, the food uh, that they needed to subsist on, because uh, it mentions the um, they performed the service of their God and the service of purification. We looked last week about how the Levites were committed to being in the temple at all times, to keeping the fire on the altar going. So they're living there. Um, and then we read here that like in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors and musicians who would sing praise uh, throughout. They would be in the temple and in rotations. They would be singing praise to God all the time. And so these singers and musicians also need food to, be, to live off of. And so all of that's happening, Right? All these good things are happening. The, the priestly choirs are back. The storerooms are made. And they've recommitted themselves to Torah. And then we get to 13 verses 1 to 3. and says, on that, on that day, the book of Moses was read aloud in the hearing of the people. And there it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be admitted into the assembly of God because they had not met the Israelites with food or water, but had hired Balaam to call a curse down on them. Our God, however, turned the curse into a blessing. When the people heard this law, they excluded from Israel all who were of foreign descent. All right, so here begins a slow decline already. So they're reading the law again, and they... Were hyperlinked. We talked about hyperlinks. This is uh, the Ammonites and the Moabites. It says they did not; they had not met the Israelites with food or water, but had hired Balaam. So this is a story that comes out of Numbers 22, uh, that specific story. But this law, or where it's written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be admitted into the assembly of God, that comes from Deuteronomy 23. So Deuteronomy 23:3. Uh, states basically exactly what is read here. No Ammonite or Moabite should be admitted into the assembly of God. And when we mentioned Balaam, is that story familiar at all? Okay, that's that's, um, Elijah and who are the... So that's from 2 Kings. Balaam is Balaam's donkey, you might be familiar, where um, the, it's in Numbers 22, so you can read the whole surrounding context there, but it's most famous because in this story, I should say, it's most famous to me because God speaks to Balaam through his donkey, and that's the part of the story they put in children's Bibles, and I have three kids. So... Um, But the shortest version of the story is that God's people are moving through the land um, closer to the promised land and they are opposed by the, um, the Amorites and God helps them, helps the Israelites gain victory over the Amorites. Then Balak, who at the time is king of Moab, he hears about this. He hears the Israelites are coming, their God is fighting for them and so he's nervous about this. But instead of... Relenting instead of submitting to the Israelites and Yahweh or uh, going out with a peace offering, he decides he's going to hire this, uh, this divinator, Balaam, to deceive and curse the Israelites. This doesn't work, spoiler alert. Um, so, this, and Balaam is trying to go and he's like stopped a couple times, and that's when God speaks through the donkey to Balaam and is like, don't do what you're about to do. Um, so it doesn't work, right? But this is the reason for not letting the Ammonites or the Moabites into the assembly of God's people. Because when they were going towards the land, they had an opportunity to let the Israelites pass through. They weren't trying to take over this land. They were trying to go past them. But instead, they put up a fight, and uh, this is their punishment. So dialing back even further... There's a little bit more history here because the Ammonites and the Moabites have a very specific ancestry. Uh, They come from Lot, who was Abraham's uh, pesky, annoying brother-in-law. And so that story uh, is in Genesis 19, uh, kind of the Sodom and Gomorrah story and then what comes after, uh, where when that city is destroyed, Lot's daughters lose their husbands and they think we'll never have kids. And so they get their father, Lot, drunk and have sex with him and get pregnant from their father. This is the offspring of the Ammonites and the Moabites. So it's not exactly a glowing family tree that the Ammonites and the Moabites have. And you can see why the Israelites do not think very highly of these groups of people. And so um, these are the people that... They read about, and they're like, oh yeah, we're not allowed to have them um, in the assembly of God. So what is the response after they read this law, the history is jogged, and their response is what in verse 3? They banned them, but who did they ban? All foreigners, right? That's a jump. That's a jump that they made. They, and we've seen them do this before, where they, when it comes to marrying people outside of the Jewish uh, people, right? Get rid of all the wives and the children, right? This is kind of the same move happening again. the The point of that law was not to uh, have people who are pledging allegiance to other gods, only to Yahweh, but then they take it a step further and say, we just won't marry them at all. And here, they're told don't allow Ammonite or Moabite people into the assembly of God. And so then they find everyone who is not an Israelite and they cast them out. They rid themselves of all foreigners. There's an incongruence here. They take it a step further than what God has told them to do. And they separate all of the foreigners. Which... If we go back to what are the people of God supposed to do? The you know the beginning Ezra one it sets up this uh, the word of Jeremiah is to be uh, fulfilled. Well, what was the word of Jeremiah that people from all nations would come and worship Yahweh? Well, how can they come and worship Yahweh if when they show up you kick them out? It it can't happen. So we're we're seeing this uh, this slide away from our happy ending. Uh, So then, uh, 13, 4 to 14. Before this, Eliashib, the priest, had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. He was closely associated with Tobiah, and he had provided him with a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and incense and temple articles, and also the tithes of grain, new wine and olive oil, Prescribed for the Levites, musicians, and gatekeepers, as well as the contributions for the priest. But while all this was going on, I, Nehemiah, was not in Jerusalem. I like that he wants you to know this is not his fault. I wasn't there when this was happening. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Some time later, I had asked his permission and came back to Jerusalem. Here I learned about the evil thing Eliashib had done. In providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God, I was greatly displeased and threw all Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the rooms, and then I put back into them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them, and all and that all the Levites and musicians responsible for the service had gone back to their fields. So I rebuked the officials and asked them, why is the house of God neglected? Then I called them together and stationed them at their post. All Judah brought the tides of grain, new wine, and olive oil into the storerooms. I put Shelemiah the priest, uh, Zadok the scribe, and a Levite named Padiah in charge of the storerooms, and made Hanan son of Zachar the son of... Mataniah, their assistant, because they were considered trustworthy. They were made responsible for distributing the supplies to their fellow Levites. So we see Nehemiah leaves for a little bit. And the priest who was put in charge of these storerooms that are meant to store the food for the Levites and the musicians gives one of these rooms away to Tobiah. Does that name ring any bells? We didn't spend a lot of time talking about Tobiah, but we have met Tobiah before. If you turn to Nehemiah 2, verse 10, we see that when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed. And so then, if you remember, Sanballat and Tobiah come up repeatedly throughout that narrative, uh, opposing the rebuilding of the city walls. So, we have a guy who has been tormenting Nehemiah the entire time. Whatever Nehemiah is trying to do, Tobiah and his buddies have been there uh, either just upset, to ridiculing, to gaining, uh, bringing more and more people as a form of intimidation and actually threatening physical harm. And this guy is shown prefer- preferential treatment. By the priest. Now that would be bad enough on its face. But the preferential treatment is that one of the storerooms in the temple is given to him. It's made his personal living quarters. And that would be bad enough. But add on top of it, again, Nehemiah 2.10, Tobiah the Ammonite. Well, who's not supposed to be in the assembly of God? The Ammonites. So we have just layered on top of each other. All of these failures where the priests who are supposed to be the, the keepers of the house of God are now getting rid of the rooms that are supposed to store food to feed the priests so that this enemy of God's people can be in the house of God. The temple is being treated to give favors to foreigners who have opposed the Israelite people, thus creating a need for the rest of the Levites who should be attending to the temple, they have to return to their fields so that they can sustain themselves. Everything that was built in that first movement, if you look back at that chart, the temple is what was made to be rebuilt. And we read a couple times that the people said, we will, not, uh, we will no longer uh, neglect God's house. That this is what they've, they've built the temple, and now they're going to keep it, only not at all. Everything they've worked for to bring the temple back, it's now, it's being desecrated, it's being neglected. The religious system, for the religious system to work, the Levites need to be in the temple, and we need the temple to be kept holy, not forsaken. And so everything that the people have worked for when it comes to the temple is being erased. All that work being undone. Then, in verse 15, we have more. In those days, I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys together with wine, grapes, figs, and all other kinds of loads. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore, I warned them against selling food on that day. People from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this wicked thing you are doing, desecrating the Sabbath? Didn't your ancestors do the same things so that our God brought all this calamity on us and on this city? Now you are stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. So we see the temple is being neglected and desecrated, and now the Sabbath is being profaned. The fourth commandment of Torah, like once they got to the Ten Commandments, it didn't take them long to get to keep the Sabbath holy. And when we looked at the seven things that they said they would do, one of them was keep the Sabbath holy. They would no longer buy or sell on the Sabbath day, and that clearly did not last very long. All that work in the second movement to reestablish Torah, gone. Erased. Well, there's more. Uh, Verse 19. When evening shadows fell on the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I ordered the doors to be shut and not opened until the Sabbath was over. I stationed some of my own men at the gates so that no load could be brought in on the Sabbath day. Once or twice the merchants and sellers of all kinds of goods spent the night outside Jerusalem. But I warned them and said, why do you spend the night by the wall? If you do this again, I will arrest you. From that time on, they no longer came on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites to purify themselves and go and guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. So um, this is actually the first time I read this in the NIV. Um, I read it in the ESV. And the ESV, instead of saying, if you do this again, I will arrest you, says, if you do this again, I will lay hands on you. He's physically threatening them. Um, But the point is not that. uh, I just noticed that. Now, to solve this Sabbath problem, right? They're buying and selling on the Sabbath. So what is Nehemiah's plan to solve this problem? Let's shut the gates and we won't open them until, well, he drives out all the people who are selling. Then he shuts the gates so that they don't, and they won't be open until the Sabbath is done. What do the merchants do? They just set up shop on the walls of the city. So now the city walls, which is what, The third movement was about rebuilding the city walls. They are now being used as a backdrop to selling, buying and selling on the Sabbath. So we have seen a complete undoing of all the returning exiles have built. They first built the temple. That's now neglected. They reestablished Torah. They can't even keep the Sabbath. Then they build the walls. Now those walls are being used to facilitate business on the Sabbath. If only that were it. It's not. Uh, Verse 23, moreover, in those days, I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. I wonder if, have, have we not discussed this at all? Is this the first time this has come up? Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judah I rebuked them and called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. I made them take an oath in God's name and said, you are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned among the many nations? There was no king like him. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. But even he was led into sin by foreign women. Must we hear now that you too are doing all this terrible wickedness and are being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women? One of the sons, one of the sons of uh, Joida, son of Eliashib, the high priest, was son-in-law to Sanballat, ringing any bells, the Horonite, and I drove him away from me. So now we have the, one of the sons, so the grandson of the high priest, has married a daughter of Sandalit the Horonite, who was also one of the tormentors of Nehemiah and the Jewish people. <sighs> so now, they're re-intermarrying again, and not just with anyone. Ashdod, they're new, to but already tonight we've talked about Ammon and Moab. That they are intermarrying with people who are not allowed to enter into the assembly of God. We've talked in detail over several weeks um, about how intermarrying was not expressly condemned by God. But the point here is that the Israelite people could not live up to God's standard, but they couldn't even live up to their own standard. They're the ones who said, we won't intermarry at all. Not, we'll do our best to make sure they worship Yahweh when we marry them. They just said, we won't marry them at all. They can't even live up to their own standard, much less the standard that God has for them. We have the priest's grandson marrying into Sanballat's family. A total collapse of all the work that they've done. And not to mention, I mean, part of me wants to like, justify what Nehemiah is doing here. But um, I won't. Because look at what Nehemiah is doing. All throughout Ezra and Nehemiah, we've seen examples of mostly good leaders. Like, yes, they have made some poor choices, but they've been pretty good leaders. At least, if the only metric we use is, are, will people do what they say? They've been great leaders. Uh, Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah, all of them had led have led graciously, without coercion. Not once have we seen them have to twist the arm of their people. They just say, this is what we should do. And the people are like, all right, let's do it. To Ezra, they're like, tell us what to do. We will do whatever you tell us to do. Like they had the authority to tell people and people would listen. And now Nehemiah has been relegated to beating these men up, pulling out their hair, forcing them to swear an oath to something that they've talked about before. It's not like this is the first time these men have heard, don't marry these foreign women. I don't know if beating them up and pulling out their hair is going to make it sink in or not, but it, I guess it makes Nehemiah feel a little bit better. Like what a fall from grace, from where we were. So that's the end. And like, like that's the end of the story. That's where... It's finished. I, it says, uh, we, I'll read the last few verses so we actually read the ending. But it says, remember them, my God, this is Nehemiah speaking, because they defiled the priestly office and covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. So I purified the priests and the Levites of everything foreign and assigned them duties, each to his own task. I also made provision for contributions of wood at designated times and for the first fruit. Remember me with favor, my God. And that's, that's the end. So, not the happy ending that we had last week. Um, what, is the ta- what are the takeaways now? What, uh, is there anything else that we haven't mentioned that we now take away from this story?
1: Yeah. And it's all through the Bible.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, we all just don't yep. Yeah, the cyclical nature that
1: it's the brokenness
0: of the human condition. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, we are sinful. We are inherently sinful. And I think uh, the example that that we saw that you know, it's not just God's laws that they can't keep, it's the ones that they made up for themselves that they can't keep. And um uh, I understand because I'm a, I'm a prideful person, if I'm honest. Uh, so when someone tells me I'm doing something wrong, my first instinct is like, no, you're looking at something wrong, <laughs> obviously, because I wouldn't do something wrong. Uh, but we are I think when we are told that uh, an action, uh, a way of living is sinful, there is an offensiveness to that, uh, to humanity, to all of us. But on the other hand, well, on one side, I get it because that reaction's in me. But on the other hand, I'm surprised people are surprised to find out that they are sinful before God because, again, I can't live up to my own standard. There are things I want me to do that I don't do. And so I'm not good enough for me. If there is a God, I bet I'm not good enough for him either. That just, <laughs> that tracks, that makes sense. Um, but yeah, that is our our lot, it, again, it's easy in a, in a narrative to read through this and be like, wow, like how dense, how bad are these people? But then we turn the light around on ourselves and it's like, ah, all right. Like the, the specifics are different, but the general story is the same, that this is, their story is my story, that I say I'm gonna do this, and maybe I do for a little bit, but then whoever the Nehemiah is in my life goes away, and I'm like, all right, I'm free. I'll go back to living the sinful life that I was doing.
1: Yeah, but the, the good news is we do have
0: good periods. So. <laughs> yeah. We don't continually go down, down, right until we just yeah. destroy us. I mean, some people do. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And they can't find me
1: back. But most of us are like Sisyphus pushing that block. <laughs> up the hill, yep. we get kind of close and then it rolls back. Yeah. Down, and we drive again
0: yeah. and Yeah, and yeah, we we do have a hope, right? As Christians, that we are as frustrating as that back and forth can be. It is a progress. There is forward progress being made, and I think um, in my own life, and as I've as I've talked and counseled with others, um, there's a temptation to look at the short term. Like yesterday, I was fine. Today, I'm terrible. Like I'm clearly, I'm just descending. Forever. Uh, but when we look at our lives in broad, view, broad broader strokes, we can probably see some forward progress. That, that through the grace of God and through the transformation of the Holy Spirit, we have made forward progress. And I think uh, one thing that uh, in some other reading that I've been doing that has come up a few times uh, as I've been reading in Romans and in James, uh, I think we want to be finished products. We, we want... Well I'm a Christian, so I should be like Christ, that it's in the name, like it, it should just happen. And when it doesn't happen, we're like, "Did I do something wrong? Is God not do? Is he like not holding up his end of the bar? who's to blame here? Because somebody is because I should be done. But then, as I read what Paul says and what James says, like we are what we are promised is a process. Uh, Paul says the, the fruit that you now bear leads to sanctification. Sanctification itself being a process of becoming more like Christ. He doesn't say now that you have been made alive in Christ, you will never sin again. He says now the fruit you bear leads to, so it's almost like now that we are in Christ, I'll still make mistakes, but that, even those mistakes are now opportunities to become more like Christ. So God, he doesn't pull us all the way out of our sin, but he redeems our sin and our shortcomings, that now we can learn from them, that this plays a part in our process of sanctification. So we do have uh, that good news where um, that, ha- that good news comes through Jesus Christ and his saving work and then the gift of the spirit that we have here at the end of Nehemiah. We're still waiting for that. We're waiting for that Messiah to come to, to set things right. Um, and so there they maybe have a hope in a Messiah, but it's, I don't know, it's not as realized as as our hope. Any other takeaways that we get now from this uh, anticlimactic ending?
1: The uh, thing that, that I take all the time is the, the futility, <clears throat> excuse me, the futility of ethnic and racial purity. I mean, mm. as long as people, two groups of people are in close proximity to one the another, they're gonna interrelate. I mean, mm-hmm. There's just there's just no way and then even when you think you have uh, the groups you know, all of one ethnic group within that there's subdivisions. You,
0: you just can't right. get right. it, you know, yeah. And this is in an area where you can enforce a certain amount of social control. Right. I mean, nowadays, I mean
1: everybody's their own
0: God now. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. Now, yeah. Yeah, there is an inherent uh, shortcoming. There's a, it's impossible. It's it's futile, it's fruitless uh, just on its face to try
1: to against somebody. Mm-hmm. That's one of the first things they bring back. The war
0: <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. You hate yeah. To bring back it them? is impossible <laughs> uh, and, and futile to try to uh, achieve some sort of ethnic uh, cleansing or like um friendliness uh, throughout a line. It, it's not what we were designed to do. Uh, and it is going to be in, impossible. And like you said, I think uh, a fundamentalism in any area when it comes to like ethnic purity, um, you'll never be pure enough anyway. Like you said, there's always subdivisions. I mean, um, just look at the history of America. It's not, there's a lot, and, and justifiably so, there's a lot of talk about white supremacy, but every white person has spent some time where they were at the bottom of the rung. If you were Italian, if you were Jewish, if you were Catholic, if you were Irish, if you were, like it, did, it didn't matter. Like you, were, you weren't white enough. You weren't the right kind of white. You weren't the flavor of white that people desired at the time. And so th- there's never really been a, an ethnic uh, purity that has lasted and I think that idea of like You'll never be pure enough. That is the inherent flaw of any type of fundamentalism. And I think we see that uh, in Christianity, that as churches get fundamentalist, like you have, we have to keep the rules. Um, they call them, the title given to them is fundamentalist, but I think they actually neglect the fundamentals of the faith. They become uh, law, like pharisaical, in their, the laws that they, they build up. But when you do that and you exclude people because they don't meet your standard... At some point, you're left, and like you said, Dave, we you are a God unto yourself because you 're the only one who fits your standard of purity. We see that happening in in politics right now that it 's happening on the left, it's happening on the right that there are purity tests you have well you know you are outside the party lines in this area, and therefore we reject everything about you and again that 's happening on the right or the left, like you you have to pledge allegiance to either this candidate or to uh, these five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, whatever our party platform is at the time. And if you if you renege on any one of these things, or if you're lukewarm on our candidate, then you're out. We we don't want you. You are the Ammonites and the Moabites and all of the foreigners. We're getting rid of all of you. Um, so yeah, that I think we see in many respects, and I think specifically when it comes to the ethnic purity, we see how that fundamental, fundamentalism is uh, fruitless and futile. Any other thoughts? I have some, but I have a microphone, so I'll let you guys share. Uh, interrupt me if anything comes to mind. But here are kind of some of my, my thoughts. Um, Again, if we stopped at the happy ending, and if the takeaway is we can do it, like enough hard work, determination, we overcome enough obstacles, and we can do it, then bringing in this not-so-happy ending is we can't do it. That there isn't enough hard work and determination that will get us to this utopia that we thought we could build, that we could get to. Uh, Religious institutions, religious practices, obedience to the law, any of our human strength. That's not what is required to bring about spiritual renewal and revival. We need a new heart. And I think that is the story of the Old Testament. We are not capable of obeying God's law in our current condition. We see humans fail and God responds over and over again, that they're never able to live up to the, the standard. And God reveals more and more of what that standard should look like as people continually fail in new and terrible ways. Uh, we see this before the book of Moses, or before Moses in the book of Genesis, that people are failing um, from, I mean, even from before, before the flood narrative, um, Cain and Abel, um, but then we get to the flood Narrative where things have gotten so bad that it says that God regretted that He created mankind, uh, which is a sentiment I can relate to. Uh, I could see why why God would feel that way. Um, so we see from the beginning that people aren't able to live up to the standard, and then this becomes as God uh, chooses Abraham. This becomes very apparent through uh, the stories of Abraham's people, and then especially when we get to Moses and the law. Is given. God gives him ten commandments, but on several different occasions, the the people have questions. Well, what about this? What about this? And we read that Moses goes and he inquires of God, and God comes and he tells God tells Moses, and then Moses goes and tells the people, This is what God said about the thing that you just brought up. And they're like, Okay. And then they practically speaking, ignore what they were just told. Uh, they ask for God's input, they get it, and then they go and do what they wanted to do anyway. Uh, they do this with the explicit 10 commandments that are given. Um, or we have examples of the Israelites committing some uh, yet unknown or yet unmentioned sin and God stepping in and saying, you can't do that. Like we, That is not who our people are supposed to be. Then this is the story we get after Moses as well. We have Joshua leading his people well, but repeatedly they fail to do what God has told them. Sometimes this happens on individual levels. There's a story of Achan in Joshua 7 where they're told to destroy everything and he keeps some of the goods for himself. And then he is, him and his family are punished by stoning because of that. And that was an individual sin. But then it happens on national Israelite as a nation levels where they make, in Joshua 9, they make ill-advised uh, treaties with the Gibeonites and uh, that brings some punishment on them. We have the book of Judges, which is the, just a downward cycle of uh, inability to obey and God having to step in. We get to the kings and Saul gets high on his own reputation and turns away from God. Uh, David has a longer ascent and a longer plateau at the top. But eventually he gets complacent and his sin leads him and the entire nation downward. Solomon steps in and restores uh, some of the, uh, the prestige of the nation of Israel. But again, eventually uh, his heart leads him to women uh, from who worship other gods, leading him to worship other gods, leading Israel uh, to be separated and eventually captured. And then we see here in the returning to the land, the Israelites are still in trouble. Their hearts have not been changed. They, they go back to the motions. They put in the right practices. They worship the right days. They, they have the right things in place, but their hearts haven't been changed. Uh, in Deuteronomy 30, uh, Moses says as they're as it's the end of his life, and they're on the edge of the Promised Land. He tells them, "God will have to circumcise your hearts. He will have to give you a new heart." Uh, we read some uh, or looked at some of Jeremiah. Um, this promise of the, the nation and the Messiah coming through it was, "God will give you a new heart. He no longer will His law be written on tablets of stone, but He will write it on hearts, uh, on your hearts." And then in Ezekiel. Uh, Our hearts of stone will be turned into hearts of flesh. That's an act of God. That's the Spirit's work in us. We can't do that ourselves. The going through the right motions is not going to bring about that change. That is a work of the Spirit. Now, with that in mind, there is still a need for Christian or God-following institutions and practices. Those are, if we... It's kind of a bit of a catch-22. Just like going through the motions, having the right practices, those aren't going to change our heart. But if we're not doing those things, then our heart is not fertile soil for the Spirit to come in and work. And so there is uh, benefit to these practices. Um, Take Scripture, for example. I think Scripture is where the Spirit meets us. As we read God's Word, the Spirit illuminates Uh, what we are reading and speaks to us through that coming together in community God meets us in this time um, taking time of quiet away from the hustle and bustle of our phones and our TV screens and our work schedules and our family that like that is important we see Jesus puts these practices uh, into his life that he is often retreating away from the noise to spend time with God there is those have uh, important, uh, th- those can bear fruit and they have an important role in the Christians' lives. But they are not what brings about change. It is the spirit who brings about change. If it was just going through the motions or putting the right practices and the right things in place, then uh, we would have seen that the, the hope we had at the beginning of Ezra, that the word of Jeremiah would be fulfilled. And this would be the moment of the restoration of Israel and the Messiah on the throne. That would have happened, but the spirit was not at work here. One last thing to kind of tie in um, everything or the the rest that we talk about from the very beginning, talking about why are we in the Old Testament, what is the story uh, that the Old Testament is telling us. Um, Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, oh, Matt, if you can uh, hit that that button there uh, so that the people watching online can see um, this picture as well. Uh, the Hebrew Bible and its layout. We looked at this on the first week. Um, Ezra and Nehemiah are right there near the end, the second to last book uh, in the the Hebrew Scriptures. Then comes First and Second Chronicles. Where where's First and Second Chronicles in our Bibles? Right, yeah, it's for, uh, Samuel, Kings, and then Chronicles. And so that's why we don't read Chronicles very much. <laughs> because you read Samuel and then you read Kings and then you get to Chronicles and you're like, haven't I just read this? Like this why 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 relive what I just read through? But here it's placed at the end, and I think for for reason. Um in the Hebrew Bible, yeah, Ezra and Nehemiah, uh is there at, right near the end, and then we get Chronicles, and it is a retelling of what we read in Samuel and Kings, but there's something else happening here. Um, I think it, so. First Chronicles 1, one, it begins with historical record records from Adam to Abraham. The first word of First Chronicles is Adam, the name of Adam, and it it lays out the history of the Israelite people. And then we get to the end of 2 Chronicles, chapter 36. So it tells the whole story uh, of the Israelite people. Um, And we get to the end, and verse 23 says, this is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. Where do we know Cyrus, king of Persia, from? Ezra chapter 1, right? The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up and may the Lord their God be with them. So we have retelling of the story and then it ends where Ezra Nehemiah begins with this edict uh, from Cyrus, king of Persia. Why would that be? Why? That's where the Hebrew... Scriptures end. What, what are they? It's not an accident. We, they're very uh, particular on why they, they put things where they put them and uh, how they tell stories. What do you think would be the thought process behind uh, retelling and then ending where Ezra and Nehemiah began? What did we read in Ezra one? Let's go. Let's look. Actually, Ezra one, uh, verse two. This is what the what Cyrus, king of Persia, says: "The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. And appointed me uh, go build a temple in Judah." We read that. Uh, kind of the the same thing. It's a little bit different. But what what about in verse one? What does it say? Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. And we, we spent time looking at what is the word of Jeremiah. And I, I set the table for you that we're supposed to be hopeful, right? The, the word that is supposed to be fulfilled by Jeremiah is not just that they'll return to their land, but in returning to their land, the Messiah will come, his throne will be established. And so we see that... be on the lookout. He's trying to rebuild that hope. We just lived through that hope and the hardest part about hope is when your hope is dashed to pieces to then hope again. Right? I I've, I've sports fans might be able to understand this. And Philadelphia sports fans might be you've hoped that your team would be successful and would win and they made it to the playoffs and then destroyed and then it's years before you even see the playoffs again, right? And then you get to be like my dad's age where the Eagles have disappointed you enough that he'd just rather disappoint himself by golfing on Sunday than be disappointed by the Eagles. And I, I understand that. And so the Jewish people have just been through the, the word of Jeremiah is going to be fulfilled. We're allowed to go back into our land. We're going to do it. And then they don't do it. And uh, the the Chronicles is like 200, 300 years before Jesus. So that means it's 200 to 300 years after the events of Ezra and Nehemiah. on the lookout pay attention um, because God is going to do it now as Christians we believe that Jesus did exactly this and I think if you look at that layout and what Ezra Nehemiah does of raising our hopes and then we're let down and Chronicles being like don't give up hope yet there's there's another one coming that prophet who will be like Moses this uh, king who will be like David he's coming be on the lookout." And then, I, and I think what that does for us is exactly what Paul said it would do. One of the reasons uh, we talked about why we read the Old Testament is because of what Paul said in 2 Timothy. Isn't that exactly what is happening in this layout? That we are taken through this story where you can't do it from from Moses, from basically the beginning of the Israelite people. uh, They're coming out of Egypt anyway. They're told, God will have to give you a new heart. We're told in Jeremiah, watch out for this prophet who will give you a a new heart, this Messiah who's coming. He will uh, write his law, on your heart. We read in Ezekiel that our hearts of stone will be turned to heart. Who's going to do this work? Well, when we read the Old Testament with Jesus in mind, or in light of what Jesus has done, is it not able to make us wise for salvation through Jesus Christ? And so it's really, it's a a beautiful uh, picture. uh, And hopefully, uh, as as disappointing as Ezra Nehemiah is specifically, and uh, I feel a little bad that well, I feel like the most we actually read of Ezra Nehemiah was today, and it was like all the bad stuff um, but hopefully you've been reading the rest, and we we've certainly looked at it um, over the last several weeks. but I think this is what the Old Testament is doing that it it sets the table for us and it it helps us I really it helps. The more we dig into it, you know, not only at this point, those of us in the room, uh, presumably, we have come to wisdom, the, the wisdom of salvation through Jesus Christ. But when we look at Jesus' life and we continue to study it, he was entrenched in the Hebrew scriptures. That, that his understanding of what it meant to be the Messiah, and I don't know how all that works. Uh, for a mostly fruitless thought exercise, I do wonder, like, when did Jesus know he was Jesus? <laughs> like, when did he know he was the Messiah? When did he know that was his lot? Was it the first scene we get from him? Well, after birth, where he's 12, and he's talking to the teachers and the law, He's he starting to put it together then? Is it later in life? Is it earlier? But whatever, whatever it happened, it is very much shaped by... How he reads the Old Testament. That that idea of uh, when he's asked what is the greatest commandment. And he says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. To love your neighbor as yourself. He wasn't the first one to put those two together. But that was not the only way to uh, rank (laughs) the laws in the Old Testament but that it was a very specific way. It was Jesus's way. That's how, when he read it, he's like, we are to love God and we're to love our neighbor. That's what we're being called to do. And then, as he he reads about, um, like in the Psalms, if you read Psalm 22, 23, 24, that's like the uh, death, crucifixion, and resurrection, or, yeah, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. So he reads that and he's like, this is what the Messiah is supposed to do. And so, we, that's why we read the Old Testament, because I don't, they were very smart about how they set up their Bible, how they weaved it together, setting it up for this Messiah that many today who are Jewish reject. But, um, but I think early on, we see that the first followers of Jesus were Jews, and they were able to put it together because of this is what the Old Testament is doing. And it kind of, for Paul, it like shook his world. Clearly, he was out persecuting Christians. And then as he has an encounter with Jesus, and then he now he looks at the Old Testament in light of Jesus, he's starting to put all the pieces together. Um, So that is Ezra Nehemiah. That's what it's doing, I think, is it's causing us to hunger. But I think we can look at it and we can see ourselves and we can see that We, as much as we want to bring a revival to uh, our church, we want to bring a revival to our families, we want to bring a revival to this nation, it's not, we don't have to have the right programs to do it. That's not what's going to do it. It needs to be an act of the spirit and we can't, if we try to do it in our own strength, we're going to end up like Nehemiah grabbing people by the hair and punching them, because we're just going to be frustrated that they don't get it, that they're not doing what they're supposed to do, but if we are faithful to what God has called us to do, we are committing ourselves to his word and to each other, um, then when the spirit is ready to do that move, we will be ready to take part in it, Um, but if we try to force it again, we're just asking for ourselves to be frustrated, so um, yeah, that's that's Ezra and Nehemiah. Hopefully you've enjoyed it and been able to take some stuff from it. And uh, we can learn from some of these lessons and apply them appropriately to our lives. Uh, any final thoughts, questions, concerns before we go? Yes, Dave? Yeah, just thank you
1: for your effort. appreciate it. Yeah, thanks. Stop, tough stuff. <laughs> Yeah,
0: for sure. Yeah, and uh, thank you for that. Uh, and I would say too that, like, part of this is uh, obviously given my job, some of my time that I have to exist is spent doing this. But it's not like I just read Ezra Nehemiah. I was like, oh, I get it. Like, this is uh, the work of many people who have come before me, um, and I would. The, the most accessible uh, and yet not shallow. Um, so that like Venn diagram of accessible and worthwhile, the Bible project, um, they have uh, YouTube videos, they have um, podcasts, um, they have a website. I don't know exactly what, I don't know if they do like a blog or not on there, but uh, if you just Google the Bible project. Tim Mackey is uh, like the head of of it. He is a great Bible teacher and he does a really good job of also, I think he is very insightful in his own right, but he does a really good job of taking these like high-minded biblical scholars and uh, boiling, chewing that up, digesting it, and then giving it to us in uh, easy to understand ways. So, um, And there are there are others too, but um, I would encourage you, you, take advantage of those resources that are out there. Um, you know, life probably doesn't allow for you to spend hours and hours uh, necessarily just digging into God's Word, but um, you know there are resources out there that are accessible, so take advantage of them. All right, any uh, specific ways we can be praying for each other? Should we go? For sure. Yeah. yeah. Fine. Um, before I came here, my grandma called and she said my aunt, who is her sister, has, she said colon cancer, and she gets checked, I think, yearly to make sure it doesn't come back. And then the same thing with my mom. My mom survived breast cancer. They do the same thing. I'd like to it. Right. And they found two words on her. Mm-hmm. So that's why they're not here. Yeah. Yeah, out. yeah. <laughs> yes. I'm sure. Yeah, and so that's... Wait, who has the
1: two My grandma is usually here, her sister. Of my my great
0: aunt. Yeah. yeah, it's your great aunt. Yeah. We'll be praying. Um, talking about family traveling triggered. Uh, thank you to all of you who prayed for Josh and Kelly who were here on Sunday. Um, my brother, his family, they traveled down, uh, they moved down to Kentucky uh, and they're... 10 to 11 hour trip took 16 hours, but they got there uh, safely. Uh, And uh, Josh was saying today, his girls, they've been there. So that was Tuesday, right? Yeah, they got there Tuesday. Today's Wednesday. So they've been there less than 24 hours at this point and they're already outside playing with friends. Uh, So uh, that is a a blessing. So uh, thank you for, for all who prayed for them anything else alright let's pray Lord thank you again for, um, for this week uh, but also for the past six weeks where we've been able to uh, dig into your word of uh, and Ezra and Nehemiah specifically And uh, Lord I thank you that um, these, these books that can be <laughs> very confusing and hard to, to wade through and yet they're so rich and so full and so uh, thank you that um, we, we still have them uh, and that there are, are lessons to be learned. I pray that you would give us eyes to see uh, and uh, wisdom to be able to uh, apply it to, to our lives. Lord, um, we think about the, the requests that were mentioned, uh, Lauren Miller's family who uh, will be traveling to uh, her mom, Peggy, who is going to see uh, her brother who now has been put on hospice and um, just uh, the unknown of what exactly this visit now entails. Um, we pray that it would be uh, fruitful, that it would be uh, beneficial uh, for the family to be able to be together and uh, for Peggy to see uh, her brother. Um, we just pray that uh, your spirit would be at work, that you would bring um, comfort to them uh, uh, in this unknown time, Lord, um, and just that they would be able to be present uh, with one another, Lord, and that uh, this would be a, a good and uh, restorative time. Uh, for them. And then for, um, for Lauren's, um, great aunt, uh, who, uh, after battling cancer, Lord, uh, you know, tumors are back. Uh, we just pray that, um, you would be with, uh, with her and with her family, Lord, just as they, uh, I'm sure there's, uh, levels of panic and anxiety and worry, um, Lord, just that they would know that ultimately, uh, you're in control, uh, that you have a plan that you will work through. We pray that, um, You'd be with the doctors who will be a part of whatever that plan is, Lord, that they would find the right one for her. Ultimately, Lord, we, we pray for, for healing and for restoration. Um, but whatever your plan is, Lord, I pray that um, all involved would would have a peace and a, and a trust and a faith that you are good, you are working, uh, and you are in control. And so uh, we look forward to seeing your hand move in that way. And, Lord, for VBS, which is coming up, Lord, uh, less than a week away now, Lord, just that you would be with uh, the all of the volunteers, uh, as we have the, the final uh, details to put into place and, and the final preparation uh, this weekend as we push to transform the building and get it ready for all those that you have prepared to come, uh, we pray that your, uh, your spirit would be at work in the hearts of all of the kids who will be coming Lord that um, that their hearts would be fertile ground for a renewal for a revival um, that you would uh, help the teachers to Uh, to know uh, what they're here to do, that they would uh, be able to communicate your love for these children in a way that is accessible for them, Lord, and uh, that it could take root. Uh, Whether we uh, see a harvest at the end of this week or uh, we just go in faith knowing that seeds have been planted, we are grateful for an opportunity to minister uh, to these little ones. And uh, we just pray that you would be with them and all the volunteers throughout the week um, and that your Uh, message of love would be communicated clearly. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.